Hi, and welcome to a special edition of The Legal Geeks, where Josh and I have a special guest with us today, filmmaker Joshua Bregman. He is here to talk about this fantastic short film he directed. Um, he actually did far more than that, but I'll let him tell us about it. Joshua, thanks so much for being here with us today. And I was hoping you could kind of start us off. Josh and I have both seen the short film, but we, before we get into it too much, if you could maybe give our audience a brief overview of what the, uh, the plot of the movie is. Okay, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, the plot of the movie is um, about a young man who discovers his father is a mad scientist. And uh, his father was convicted uh, 15 years in the past uh, from the movie of the crime of destroying history and uh, has recently gotten out of prison. And the young man has a chance to confront his father. And the young man, uh, his name is Connell, and he has always believed in his father's innocence and now has the chance to have that, his belief confirmed. So they meet and it's the, really the film is the core of it is the drama, drama between the exchange between them and what the young man finds out, which is very contrary to expectation. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Ooh, intriguing. Josh, what did you have to do? What did you think about this? Well, I loved it because it followed a pattern of science fiction that we do not see enough of with an original story. I remember in the 70s seeing sci-fi shows that were just out there, confusing, a little funky, and would get you to think. And this is one of those creative ones. It's not constant spaceship battles. There are no sparkly vampires. There's nothing out of that. Josh hates sparkly vampires. <laughs> yeah. As we all should. <laughs> Curse of the sparkly vampire. And this... It's creative, and the drama is so direct in being able to see a very realistic-looking future uh, and a father and son having a discussion at a diner, and, it's, and that is just masterful. Thank you. Well, yeah, Joshua, yeah. it is a great idea. Where, um, where did this idea, and first of all, I also love this, um, the, the crime of destroying history. I don't know if that's in any penal code anywhere, but it should be. I think that's a, a very interesting crime. But before we get into that, where did you get this idea? Um, I was reading an anthology um, of science fiction short stories called TRSF, which is short for Technology Review Science Fiction. And um, I had been a fan of the author, Ken McLeod. He had a short, short story in that anthology. And I had been a fan of his for, for a while before, and I read that short story. And it really just hit the nail on the head for me. Um, I liked the relationship between the father and the son, and um, the uh, son and the diner waitress. Um, and I liked the themes of the story, and it, I liked its compactness and so um i just got really excited when i read it. it i you know i read a lot of science fiction and um that one really just you know uh you know it moved me and touched me and I, so, so i was like okay i should pay attention to that and and um and you know go from there i think at this point we should say we're now entering spoiler territory so if you have not seen 
the film. Well, wait, before we get to that, I know you want to do that, but one little just side note before we get to that, in case somebody wants to watch up to the spoilers, um, we were talking before about funding for this too, and that's funding for some of these different things has come up on our blog before, and the source you had mentioned was one I was not familiar with. So how did you get the funding for this? Because again, for a short film, and quite frankly, I kind of had low expectations for production values going in. I don't know if that's good or bad but um, I mean the production values especially because there was some kind of there was a very technical moment there um, I thought was very impressive it's very polished but again kind of some I thought pretty advanced moves um, you know right up there with like agents of shield and stuff so I was impressed um, so how did you get the funding for this um, so we, we started out with a little bit of money of our own and then we uh, sat down with the producer Victoria Namova and um, she's amazing and we broke down the script and we looked at it and then we realized it was going to cost more than what we had and then we thought about the time that we had before we had to shoot it and whether or not we could raise money online through crowdfunding and um, so we decided to try crowdfunding and we got a lot of help from our line producer Sabina Smitham who helped us out with all that and she um, and Victoria really uh, were amazing and they uh, put up the website and then put up the crowdfunding uh, appeal and we sent it out to friends and family and Ken uh, McLeod the author um, was nice enough to send it out to his on his blog uh, so his fans got to see it and so we raised the money that way and um, yeah, it worked really, really well for us. We actually raised slightly more than our goal. And um, that money allowed us to, um, you know, pay uh, the actors and uh, get a nice kit for the, you know, the camera and the lights and to get the location, which was really crucial, um, and then feed everybody, which is the most crucial thing. That is. I'm very big on food. That's very important. Um, did you yeah. say it was Indiegogo? Was that the crowdfunding source you used? Uh, it's Indiegogo. Yeah, oh. I-N-D-I-E-O-G-O. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think I think it's UK-based. I could be mistaken. Okay. But, um, yeah, we shot it all in the UK. I was in film school at the time there, so this was my graduate thesis project. Oh, and, um, wow. Yeah, so we shot the whole thing there. So it's a Scottish story. Um, shot in London with English actors and an American director and Russian producer and a German DP and, uh, and a Belgian editor and a, a host of other uh, of the other uh, creative contributions were from different people around the world too so yeah it was pretty exciting very cool do we dare ask do they get grades in graduate school how does it work I know how it works in law school I don't know how it works in film school did you get a grade well, the British system has sort of you know, three levels, and I, I did well. I'll okay. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> We're lawyers. We love grades. <laughs> yeah. I, Josh, now if you want to get to your spoiler alert, I won't stop you now. Okay, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. If you have not watched Joshua's film, The Scattered, stop listening. Turn us off. Go watch it. We'll wait. Not 12 minutes, but we'll wait. Okay, are you done? All right, let's, let's get into this now. I, know, I totally love this. Totally love the location, the kind of broken-looking future and the tech side of it, uh, the PDA that Connell was using with the holographic displays. We have that available now in some degree, 
And mm -hmm. seeing that being greater used uh, was very cool. I was a history geek before a legal geek, so I started thinking about the impact of the destruction of paper, which gets into all kinds of weird things from we wouldn't have business cards, we wouldn't have cardboard boxes, uh, my closet would become really terrifying at that point, and so <laughs> there, there are all these the, those issues that, that come from that, but yeah. I think there's... Humanity in all of recorded history up until the 21st century created about six exabytes worth of information. That's how much uh, uh, all the books in the Library of Congress would, would amount to. So we, preservable information, in other words, or preserved information. We now generate that amount of information on a weekly basis. So all of human creation is being replicated weekly. Unfortunately, it's not. But most of it's on like Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton, so it's really worth absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's not the same. It's it's tweets. It's it's not the Magna Carta. No, it's 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 text messages of like go get milk, and so there we. <laughs> so it's not Facebook. Right. Look at this sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instagramming food. That would be the new picture in this new post paper world. Exactly. Well, there it is. I guess. Yeah. But a lot of information has been digitized. Medical records have been digitized. And so I'm not sure if this actually happened, not that I want to do a science experiment. Uh, right. if, I don't think we would lose history. I think we would create massive, massive inconveniences. And I think people would, I think a war would start because of it. I think a lot of people would be that angry. Uh, yeah. And, and Keith's head would end up in a pike someplace. But I do right. think, I mean, the Vatican's digitized what they've needed to, the Grant's digitized, and, and we've been really good at oral history. And even when you think back to Socrates, he warned against written language, thinking that it would make the minds of men dull because they didn't have to remember things anymore. So even, you know, pre-written language, we had oral histories and oral traditions. So I still think we would have the nastiness in the Balkans and the Middle East and, and problems that are caused by history. And I don't know if it would, destruction of paper would make that stop without like a full-blown EMP going off to send us all back to the Stone Age. Yeah. Okay. And I, if you don't mind, Joshua, I have to jump in. Josh and I often disagree. <laughs> and no surprise. I'm going to disagree. Um, I think, first of all, the EMP thing, and I have to admit, I stopped watching Revolution after like the third episode, but that's kind of that story, right? The EMP wipes out all technology and shuts down everything. God forbid, yes, we're all hosed then, and I'm going back to the farm in northern Minnesota, and I think I'll be okay up there. Um, good luck, Josh. <laughs> but I think this is a different, interesting thought experiment, right, about not so much, you know, technology, but the idea that there are certain documents, even the Constitution, and we've had a little bit of discussions of this and the importance of the Constitution, but how those written documents, the Bible or any of the other major religious texts, how people can get so absolutist over them, right, um, and can go to these extremes because of these written words. And so, yes, I mean, there have been tons of fights, obviously, based on the Bible, for example. I mean, if the Bibles themselves actually were destroyed, yes, I know it's all preserved digitally, but it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. Does once you lose that original source and that physical 
representation, especially in the Bible sense, in theory, that's supposed to be handed down from God, right? I mean, once you lose that, you know, yes, people always find things to fight over, but does it take away some of those major kind of, you know, points of contention? I don't know that it really would, but I think it's an interesting idea. It's a super, what Joshua's created and what, what Ken originally wrote is super cool in that way and getting people to think about it. But that's like saying the Gutenberg printing press took away from the meaning of the word of God because people weren't recopying it by hand anymore. And I do think we'd figure out other ways to print. And the, the other scary thing I was thinking about with this microorganism being released out and knocking out of paper, if it starts taking out trees and the oxygen supply and plant life, it's also the end of the human race. So there's, there's right. that side of it as well. Well, that's right, a parade right. of horribles, and yes, I prefer to think that, you know, he was able to specifically target just paper, although apparently it also includes um, photographs, but um, I guess a good point about Gutenberg, but still, I don't know, you know, they talk about tangible items. I mean, people do often rally around those tangible items that they can touch as opposed to more abstract ideas, and really, once we get into a purely digital world, it is more abstract ideas. It is harder to be absolute. It is easier. I mean, you're an e-discovery expert, so you can talk about hash values and being able to tell different documents apart, but for the other 99.99% of us, you know, it's very hard. You can have 10 and internet sources that can claim to have the accurate version of the Bible, which of course there are actually several printed versions of the Bible that claim the same thing, so I just hurt myself right. there. But still, you can have a million versions online, so you can have a million little things. You know, it is harder to rally massive groups of people around something. I mean, it's fracturing, right, or fragmenting. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. Maybe it's more well, of just fragmenting the entire world. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing about Gutenberg was that, you know, that sort of Protestant Reformation was sort of around that time because the Bible was more accessible and then you start to get sex and sex and sex dividing. And, and, um, and I mean, I'm, there already were, you know, pre-Protestant sex and even in early Christianity. But um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 t- the trees, um, <laughs> my sort of rationale for the trees was just that the paper is dead and the trees are alive. So they're able to fight off the, the fungus. Um, and then, yeah, I, I mean, also, I think it, it sort of is really just sort of asking the question. I mean, one of the things that I kind of left open in the film was that, um, is the world better or not? You know, the father thinks it is and the son doesn't agree and we don't get to see much. And the, the overall patina of the film is kind of gray and, and dystopic, but, um, we don't really know if there's less sectarian violence. And I, and I kind of did that so that, um, I did that so that, you know, that would be the question that was raised in it. And also kind of the questions raised, how much of the sectarian violence is due to, uh, you know, textual literalism? Or is it really about something else, you know, and like how thinly divided could uh, a sect or a faction be textually before, you know, it kind of lost critical mass and just was like a faction of one sort of thing. Um, which actually goes you could tie into one of my favorite um authors uh tom robbins where he talks about that in Mm -hmm. jitterbug perfume which is one of his best books about basically how religion and gods only survive if there is that critical mass of people who believe in them i think terry pratchett even did that in one of his books too uh, the small of god things speaking of anthologies i first discovered him in one and he's british but um anyway but yeah that's uh it's certainly some really interesting ideas i think the father-son thing was interesting too because it does raise the question of a parent 
you know, if you do something for the greater good, including the greater good of your child, but your child's like, I just wanted my dad to play catch with. I mean, that's always, I've kind of thought about that sometimes. And you think about the people who have given up so much of their personal lives and their families' lives for a greater good that in theory benefits their family too. But do their children, were they just wishing, gosh, dad, I just wish, you know, you had a nine to five job and were home with me every night. Right. Yeah, no, I, that's one of the things that really drew me to the story um, was that emotional core because, I mean, every parent has to make those trade-offs about how much time they're going to spend with their children versus how much they're going to work to provide and, and has to make decisions for the greater good that sacrifice, you know, the immediate um, needs of, of the individuals in the family. And then and every child goes through that moment where um, they realize their parents aren't the people that they thought they were. Or, you know, um, and that's kind of a key moment in the movement to adulthood. And so for me, I wanted Connell to, in, in the story, he goes through it in this one day. This is sort of one person sort of transition into adulthood in a, you know, in, in the space of a day. Um, and, and, and I think it ties in with those larger themes about history um, because, you know, the uh, we start off with a quote about the cosmos and how that there's um, a light that can only is the oldest light that we can see, and that's at, at least technologically at this point uh, the human horizon for history. I mean, there's that's as far back in in time as we can see at the moment, and um, and then Keith, the father, creates that horizon for the the planet, and then. Connell creates it for himself in the end when he destroys the photograph. So there's sort of, I wanted to link those larger issues to the, the macro and the micro and the, the personal and the global. Um, and the, the, interestingly, in the original story, it takes place in a train station and in the Glasgow train station, which I tried to get a permission to shoot in, but it was the Olympics and they were not having any of it. So, uh, we and in the original story, the train station in the future has a, a dome that's made out of a, a material that reflects that light from the cosmos, and that's how we learn about it in the story. And I really wanted to create that visual effect, but we weren't able to do it, so we put it in the opening text. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess that, and, and for me personally, the, there's also just this issue of um, you know how much do we look to the past, and how much does our relationship with the past hold us back or or give us some kind of foundation and how much is it beneficial and how much is it detrimental uh, to us on a personal level and on a social level. So at the social level, when Keith is trying to stop these sectarian attacks, you know, he thinks he's, you know, um, cutting off history or at least I think, I mean, I think the best thing you could probably say, the most generous way you could say it is that he's destabilizing history radically. So that, um, you know, the, that stops being a factor. But that could also change, and this is more your department than mine, that could also change the, the justice of the situation, right? So if people don't have these textual artifacts that they believe are, you know, divine um, to rely on and everything's destabilized in a digital form, um, when they're in the larger social setting and they're making sort of justice claims to each other about, um, I think, um, you, you know, even if it's down to, you know, in the UK, there's football hooliganism. So, and, you know, each one perceives themselves to be part of a larger tradition, you know, um, you know, other people from the outside or people on the opposing side would look at that and say, well, you know, that's, I don't know how, how 
solid is that? That's just a bunch of stuff you read online. <laughs> well, Josh, that is an interesting point. Josh, what do you think yeah. of this whole, the criminal aspect of this and the, the crime of destroying history, especially as a history yeah. geek? Would you put that at the top of the penal criminal system? It's yeah. I'm, well, I'm a big uh, logophile, so I read a lot and I like books, and I and I have an ebook, but I, I like my physical books. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be too happy about that. Uh, very interestingly, a very close friend of mine is a medievalist, and um, I asked her her opinion of it, and she said that actually the Eastern traditions and texts would be the hardest hit by something like this because. They're using paper, and the Western tradition has mostly used um, papyrus and parchment. So, actually, quite a lot well, of things. That's to be true preserved. too. Look at that. There's even some discrimination yeah. in that sense. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh, what do you think of the criminal aspect of this? Oh, a couple parts. Yeah, well, What's that? Go ahead. Okay, so, the way I see it is, Keith played God, and right. people don't respond well to that, and so. Yeah. <laughs> There would, you know, ask Simon Rushke how that worked out with one book that he wrote and the death threats on his life. And if they, if one person knocks out all paper, creating everything from inconvenience to how do we go to the bathroom to bigger issues of, uh, of life and, and meaning, uh, they'd want his head on a pike. So there's that aspect that he took it upon himself to make this global judgment call and that he had no right to do, just right. no right to do that at all. Now, proving beyond a reasonable doubt, we could do that forensically, and it's at least alluded to and a hat tip to you, Victoria, and Ken for, for what you created and being able to dig through the emails and do computer forensics and find out uh, what when Keith entered uh, the lab, because um, that there should be a, a keypad or biometric security to measure that. So there would be ways to put him in the place, uh, show motive, uh, show access. And so I think actually they could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt uh, through computer forensics of his actions. How do you show motive, though? Because in the, in the film, he says he, he just stayed quiet at the trial and let his counsel come up with his defense. So... I mean, what I was kind of hoping, and I don't know much about British law and didn't have time to do proper research to be to know. So I, what I was we're trying to build it so that it was basically a circumstantial case and, and it wasn't clear whether it was an accidental act or not, or, you know, his intent would be opaque. So in that case, that would change the severity of the punishment, right? Uh, to a degree, the circumstantial evidence is still evidence, and it can be overwhelming. And the mm. defendant has a right in the United States not to testify against themselves. And so you have the right to sit there and be quiet. And I think the, the British system has something similar. So it's up yeah. to the state to prove their case. So it's up to the state right. to prove, and they probably could do that if there were writings on blogs, uh, letters would be out because you destroyed them all. Um, you could make a really... Inner- oh, there's a destroying evidence claim, a spoliation yeah. claim against him as part of the case. Yeah. Yeah. A really big... <laughs> you, know, like you like your books too. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, being an attorney, what we do is based upon precedent. The case law generally looks back and goes, well, how did we handle this before? And with some of the 
recent posts that I've done, I enjoy pulling back to go like, okay, let's define treason. And, and how was it stated in 1807 in the trial of Vice President Aaron Burr? Because that's just how I roll. I like that sort of thing. And I was able to read all of that because Lexus has it digitized. And right. so there's still ways to, to get it. Uh, I think the end of toilet paper would start a war. Uh, I do think the people who have, uh, you know, uh, gift wrapping companies, uh, Hallmark would be really upset. And because, right. but I also think we'd figure out different ways to print things just as they had figured out how to do different types of tea, be it synthetic or, or silk, which again, right. was really great creative how you, how you guys did that. Yeah, yeah. No, I wonder if, you know, yeah, maybe people would scramble to find other media to print on. And, and I wonder, too, whether people would feel that the digital um, archive wasn't enough all of a sudden. I mean, we have this sort of mania for digitizing things now, and, and everyone's very enthusiastic about it. But then I kind of wonder if without the sort of the hard copy backup, uh, whether people would start to feel a little iffy about, you know, and then and actually start recording things non-digital analog. Um, even if it wasn't, you know, you could make a rational argument that there's so many digital copies and they won't all disintegrate. But if there's a certain sort of psychological... Well, it goes back to blank. people like to tangibly, tangibly hold things, right? At the end of the day, that digital mm -hmm. copy just isn't the same. Um, you know, yeah. I can take a million pictures of my kids, but it's those three or four printed out that are the ones that are, well, they're all important, but that are the most important. Um, I ha Oh, go ahead, Josh. Were you going to say something, my Josh? Well, yeah, I was wondering about the motive thing, how you would go to prove his motive. I mean, you could circumstantially show that he was in the room and it was released while he was in the room. And but I mean, and would you need motive? I mean, if someone accidentally burned down a library versus arson, right? You know, when you get to the science experiment sort of thing, you're starting to look at strict liability, so motive might not be necessary to prove. Other it depends on the crime that they're being charged with. I mean, there are crimes, you're right. The more serious um, criminal or crimes that you think of, there usually is an intent thing. That's why there's, you know, negligent manslaughter as opposed to murder. One of those, there is an intent to harm somebody or murder somebody. One, there isn't. So I do think you're right. I mean, destruction of property, which would certainly be one of the crimes you'd be charged with, I don't think there's an intent aspect for that. You know, the crime of destroying history or something like that, um, you know, there would probably have to be an intent part. Some of the civil things like a tortious interference with business, um, I can't remember if you have to have intent for that, if that's one of the torts that you need to have intent. But it can, it depends on the crime. I kind of assume from what you had set up in the movie that that's why actually his sentence wasn't that severe at the end of the day is because they couldn't prove the intent. And so they couldn't charge with a more, again, I don't know exactly what the crime would be, but a more massive, holy cow, you screwed up everything you effed up the right. whole world, a kind of uh, crime. Right, right, right. I mean, that's also kind of the, you know, the other thing that we're sort of confronted in this era is that an individual, because of technology, has so much power, you know, and with the threat of terrorism and everything, um, you know, one person can do quite a lot of damage, intentionally or not. So, I mean, I also wonder, yeah, whether, um, you know, and for the sake of preserving scientific research, if, you know, where maybe Hallmark would be one is head on the pike, but maybe the scientific community 
in a, in a strange way, I mean, even though he abused it, might want to rally to his defense for fear that, you know, everything would get shut down because there would be rampant paranoia that anything going wrong would be so catastrophic. You know what I mean? That, I they could, where they could go on the other extreme going, you did the biggest book burning on the planet right. and, were the, and destroyed Newton's original works. You destroyed art. So right. that, that's kind of a tough one to, to know which way they would go because right. there some might rally to the defense of oops and others right. might go you you really screwed up you know it's, it's like if we built a particle accelerator that cracks the planet until uh granted we're all dead but the people who pulled the trigger are the ones <laughs> who are you know not really like if there are any survivors but right. there, there's there is a actual issue that we have in today's world and Jessica highlighted it, and I frequently do it as well, with not printing enough digital pictures. That we have the mm. most photographed era in human history, and it's all going to be lost because people won't, you know, do Shutterfly or Blurb or any of the books. And everyone should do that annually to go like, here was my 2014, um, because if you don't, your grandkids will have no idea of who you were and what you did and didn't have that connection. So there, there are those who who live in the past and that's wrong. Uh, But you shouldn't sacrifice the past and have a nihilistic view of living in the moment. Hey, as one of those moms who has a million pictures and I haven't even uploaded to Shutterfly in years and you're stressing me out, Josh, the problem is now is there's so many pictures you take that it's no longer just, you know, you take 36 pictures, you take them into Kodak or whatever and have them printed out and you you have what you have. I have all these millions of pictures of my children, but now I also have all these editing options and uploading. It's a big commitment. So I don't think it's a whole, you know, I'm still too obsessed with documenting my children's present to even be there physically with them in the present sometimes. But as far as the printing out, it's not because of some nihilistic thing. It's just because I'm overwhelmed by the task. So we're going to get off of that because that will stress me as a mama out. (laughs) But I have to say, Joshua, I am both, I'm very impressed by you and by Ken, where a short story and a short movie can inspire um, such discussion and kind of, you know, some really interesting interesting debates over uh, some big topics. So I think this was a great movie. I am going to encourage everyone to see it. I think my family in particular will actually be very interested in it. Um, they're all a bunch of sci-fi fans and we can have big debates. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And, and Joshua, I will add that this is what science fiction is supposed to be and being provocative and thought-provoking. So again, A-plus there. And I would also encourage you guys, if you have not yet, throw your hat in for the Geeky Awards in the short film category. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joshua. You take care. And America and Great Britain, stay geeky.